Welcome to the Christ Church Jerusalem podcast, where we seek to gain a better understanding of the Hebraic context of Scripture. We're delighted that you're joining us this week for our latest Bible study episode. Our aim is to equip our listeners to wrestle with and deepen their understanding of the Word of God with a unique perspective that we bring from Jerusalem. Thanks for tuning in. Good evening and welcome everybody, brothers and sisters, to Christ Church Jerusalem, to our evening Bible study. Uh, we are actually in the last chapter of Amos, the prophet, uh, hearing the roar of the Lord from Zion. And as we've been journeying through, through uh, his message to northern Israel, we've actually been reflecting on our own societies and our own modern day culture and uh, hearing the voice of the Lord uh, speak to us and hoping that that will actually wake us up to the roar. Of, of God. Um, we're in the presence of the Lord, so we're going to acknowledge his presence, which we traditionally do through prayer, and our sister will pray us in. Father, we do come before you this beautiful day, and Father, as we just bow our hearts before you, we pray that you anoint Aaron fully with his, with your beautiful Holy Spirit, Lord. Speak through him, help us to have hearts to and perceive what you're saying, ears to hear, and minds to understand, and above all, Lord, to do exactly what you're asking us to do. We just commit the study into your precious hands, and we thank you for your beautiful, beautiful Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amos 9. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on the heads of them all. And then I will slay the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Wow. Though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight, on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I'll set my eye against them, for their evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, the one who touches the land so that it melts, and all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile, subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the sea, pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me? The sons of Israel, declares the Lord. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I'll destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. 
All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake or confront us. Now in that day, I will raise up the fallen sukkah of David and I'll wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this? Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. And then the mountains will drip sweet wine on all the, and all the hills will be dissolved. And I'll restore the captivity of my people. And they'll rebuild the ruined cities and they'll live in them. They'll also plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they'll make gardens and they'll eat their fruit. I will also plant them in their land. And they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord. All right. Well, there's a lot of different themes going back and forward there. Uh, almost as though there were two different chapters. But um, so, okay, so let's go based on a literal reading uh, of the text. What jumps out at you? I personally have been fascinated by verse nine on. Uh, it's quite obscure Hebrew, but after looking it all up and consulting the commentaries and the various translations, it seems to be that the Lord is using an image of a sieve that he's going to use on the exiled people of Israel to separate the wicked from the uh, just, in some sort of sense at least, and the, and the continuation of the chapter seems to imply that it is those who are retained in the sieve while uh, other things fall through that will be brought back to the land of Israel. And I, if this is the case, I found this fascinating to meditate on it with regard to God's work in the ingathering of the people of Israel in the last century and a half. That uh, perhaps it's not a helter-skelter uh, sort of process, but that it's actually been uh, orchestrated and sieved out, uh, actually according to uh, some sort of mysterious work that God has done. Nice. Can you help me out here? Because I was reading this uh, this afternoon, and um, I mean, when I've read this before, this is what I thought. Okay, I thought, okay, God's going to bring them back in the land. Great, here we go. They're never going to get pulled out again. That's Israel that I'm looking at right now. Uh, it, it says, I will restore the captivity of my people. They'll rebuild ruined cities and live in them, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their fruit. I'll also plant them in their land. Does that imply that he's also planting Jews in diaspora? Or is it actually just a, mis, a mistran, misreading? This is, I, uh, I understood it to be a regathering to the land of Israel. Okay, yep. And I, yep. And I would be in anything other than that. It would have never occurred. I will plant them on their land. Their land Correct. is the land that they were exiled from. I think that's pretty clear. He is, right. He's given a very full and long and and detailed image of a, a wicked people being exiled and God pursuing them with this, that, and the other uh, means to 
the ends of the earth and the bottom of the sea even. And then the return to their land, Admatam, it's their earth there, their, their piece of dirt, as it were. Yeah, I literally, have, their I piece have, of dirt, yeah. I have to understand this to be the land of Israel. Yeah, well, actually said, well, yeah, actually, yes, it does. Um, I think it is. The, what, what I was just trying to understand is, is that throughout history, there have been some periods where the Jewish people have thrived in diaspora. And, uh, and so is that also a blessing from the Lord or just an aberration of history? Um, uh, and yet what we're seeing now is the, the, the actual blessing. So uh, it was just one of those things that I was thinking of when I was looking at the text going, okay, has he also blessed them in other parts uh, of history as well? Um, um, obviously, the, the history of the Jewish people in diaspora is not a pleasant one uh, in its long stretch of history. Um, but well, it's rife, it's rife with a, a well-known bloody history. However, yeah. we can, between the, the, the chapters of uh, persecution and Holocaust, there, there are long stretches and significant places of prosperity and right. growth and multiplication. Uh, Eastern Europe was one of them, uh, where whole millions of people appeared virtually out of nothing. Yep. In the course, in the course of two or three centuries, we of Correct. course. Correct. Uh, when I was in when I was in Poland last year, I discovered because I didn't know much about Polish history, but uh, they welcomed the Jews in sort of like the 13th century. Um, there was no mass pogrom. There was never an expulsion, and Poland Lithuania became an empire. And flourished up until the Holocaust. Yeah. There's another scriptural spiritual truth that I believe the people of Israel have in many ways personified, and that uh, stated in the teachings of Jesus that the meek will inherit the earth. Hmm. It's really quite a mysterious and and a counterintuitive statement because our history books, of course, are full of tyrants and wars and slaughters and invasions, but if you actually take the long view and you see what is the result of all of these things, uh, yeah, the meek people went out in the end. You know, tyrants only survive for a generation or two. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll honor the hands. Shimshon, you're first. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, um, Aaron. Yeah. Um, just a follow up to, to, to that question you just threw in before now. Um, I, I also remember in the book of Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah was asking the exile to pray for the peace of the land where they dwell, because in the prosperity of the land, they will also prosper. Um, so we've seen um, where many times the Jews are expelled. It kind of brings prosperity to the land where they, they've been expelled to uh, in some certain way. Um, but this ending, this conclusion chapter of um, Amos is a very, just like you said, almost as if it's um, two chapters. They just merge into one. Um, it starts very, very um, on the wrong foot well, for the Israelite. Um, God was very furious and was said, this is it. And uh, he gives the sign and he himself begins to orchestrate the destruction. You know, he says, smite the lintel, you know, the house, you know. And um, a very poetic way of saying that, okay, the strongest part of the house was destroyed and um, every other thing would crumble as well. And so it's, it's became an harbinger of um, serious judgment against Israel. 
but it ends up with such a promise of restoration. Um, it's, it's one of the most powerful promise of restoration that everybody would dwell on that is on vine. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a very powerful um, picture of restoration. But one of the things that picks me very much in that chapter is the, um, the prophet Amos calling back to the Israelites, uh, I believe that's what God was telling them, that um, you're not the only one I've taken out from a land and brought them to another land. Yeah. So, yeah. So we always talk about, you know, God taking out the Israelites from Egypt, but God has orchestrated other migrations in history also, according to this um, chapter. And it's it's uh, it's kind of shows the sovereignty of God that God rules over the whole world and everybody belongs to God and God can do as he pleases. But it's very fascinating to see that um, God was actually in charge of moving people around. Yeah, this is uh, in reference to verse 7. To verse 7, yeah. To verse yep. 7, yeah. Where God says, you know, look, are you not like the sons of Ethiopia, right? You know, or the sons of Egypt or even the Arameans, whom I've also moved around from different countries. And we also noticed um, in when we did the last words of Moses, the study of, De of Deuteronomy, Moses also declares that God had used other nations to destroy uh, some of the of the bad guys, and uh, so again, as Shimshon's mentioning, God has had His hand on all peoples, not just the Jews. Yes, the Jews, absolutely, but also all nations, and has um, um, used them, manipulated, blessed, you know, uh, moved around to His purposes. Um, uh, I don't know if we would say spoken to them, but potentially. Uh, and, and some of them may even have been um, worshipping God okay, in ignorance, but, but, but God as they knew him. So, yeah, and, uh, and so that is a very interesting little look at history. Um, so, and which, which you get these little glimpses in the text here. So that's, that's actually, as I, I agree with uh, Shimshon, fascinating um, little uh, uh, enlightenment there by the prophet. All right. Um, so, uh, Vida or David, you've got a hand raised? Yes, Aaron, it's me. Uh, in, verse, hey, on, in verse 11, uh, is this not the uh, sort of the crux of this whole chapter? Uh, because this, this verse 11 seems to imply a messianic ending here, which is, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David. And it's, it's talking about in that day. This is, as the chapter begins, this is going to happen in that day. So when we talk about raising up the tabernacle of David, is this the end time event? I was listening to what REA was saying. And uh, he said it was a gradual thing, right? But uh, are we talking about an end time event here? Okay. So uh, let's have a look at the Hebrew here. The Yom HaHu, okay, that is looks like it's a day okay in that day in his day okay akim et sukot david hanofelet so you'll you will raise up the the sukkah of david that has fallen down um, um exactly what is the sukkah of david it's a very interesting phrase rea have you ever come across a phrase where they're not talking about Bait David, 
But now we're talking about something called the Sukkot David. Um, well, I have I have a lot of musician friends, or I have over the years, who, who <laughs> insist, insist that this relates to Levitical praise. However, in context, it seems to be uh, viewing the current state of the House of David and even its its immediate prospective deterioration in in a way that reminds the prophet of a of a of a hut or a lean to as compared to the uh, mighty house of David that it started out as. And he seems to then be prophesying that even this, this, this re residual uh, hut is going to fall and collapse completely soon. And yet even for it, there will be a resurrection. And, and a, it seems to be a messianic prophecy yeah. of the restoration of the house of David. Yes, yeah. because in, 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 Isaiah, in Isaiah, it's going to speak about uh, a throne being established and, and, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment. And yes, uh, it seems to really point to uh, the messianic thing. So yes, thank you. Does, it, does it say the, the Sukkot David there? Is yes, that like I'll read the verse in, in, in Isaiah 16. And in mercy shall the throne be established and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. Okay, that's in Isaiah. And so that's a messianic phrase there, okay? Because the beginning of Isaiah 16 is going to say, send ye the lamb to the ruler of, of, of the land from Silah to the wilderness into the mount of the daughter. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on here. So, and mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Aria. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think in this place um, it's talking more about the end of because if they're going to go in exile, that means the the kingdom is going to stop having a king. I mean, there's no there cannot be a king in exile, so it's going to have a force. And here, the part of the restoration that's talking about in that day is talking about in the day of restoration. Of course, we can look at it as a messianic. Um, prophecy of the end time, but we can also look at it for the people of that time, what it meant for them as they're hearing it. They will be considering, okay, after the judgment, after the catastrophe, the kingdom is destroyed, but God is going to set up the, 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 the kingship again, which is, of course, the Davidic dynasty, and he will begin to rule again. Right. Okay. But the, the go, go with me again. The northern kingdom were not Davidic kings, though. So, so like this is this is where some of this prophecy, even though he's speaking to northern Israel, he's also referencing southern Israel, right? And um, you know, it's, it's not that the south's going, oh, it's great, keep keep going, Amos. You know, tell those northern guys, you know, really what for? Um, you know, because Amos is turning around, going, you know, you're not that good yourself, okay? <laughs> You've got some issues coming. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, I believe part of the breach of um, the um, that resulted to the falling down of the Sukkar of David, uh, as has been referenced, was also part of what um, uh, resulted to the splitting of the kingdom. So if it's restoring the breaches, in fact, one of the breaches that resulted to the splitting was because of the David kingdom that was splitted. Um, Solomon did do so well that his son, during the time of his son, the kingdom was splitted. So if it's referring to this, I believe it's um, the, the, the prophet is also speaking about the restoration of Israel as a kingdom again, 
um, not as the northern and the southern um, kingdom as we have it um, at the time we were speaking. All right. Okay. Um, any other issues or things that jumped out, uh, Angie? It really does look like there's two definite parts to this, this chapter. The, the, the first bits, God has been leading up to, um, to a very affluent, very successful Israel and uh, who, who think that they're doing well, who think that they've got great religion, that uh, they've been following the Lord. Um, they're even, you know, keeping the Sabbath and festivals and new moons. And then you know, the prophet's been saying, look, you've been getting this all wrong. And then all of a sudden it starts with, you know, this, this vision sequence. Um, the, the prophet sees the Lord standing beside the altar. Well, what altar? Is it the altar in heaven? Eventually, this whole maybe it's the vision sequence that he's seeing. That, uh, and, uh, and God is saying, you know, um, that's it. Let's start the smiting. And, uh, you know, when God wants to start doing that kind of stuff, um, it can get kind of frightening, right? You can think of not only just worldwide floods, and that's pretty catastrophic, top it off, but whole cities get overthrown. Uh, nations like Egypt, uh, the wrath is hurled on. Uh, and then you have a look at Revelation and you see, right, the, the, the Lord is the same yesterday, today and forever. There's a fair bit of smiting going on um in revelation as well that um there is a threshold for god's patience and uh, he is long long suffering but long doesn't mean forever uh, which is a, a something that israel seems to have forgotten and potentially our world as well okay is that people think that they can probably get away with uh lying to the lord and that's actually not true so uh, the and then, and then the description that you get is um, it's it's quite it, it's very specific. Not only do I just start smashing stuff, but it doesn't matter where you hide. I'm coming for you. Whether whether you you, you go into space, I got you. Whether you go into the into the sea, and it was an interesting phrase, where I can't see you. What do you mean you can't see me? So I can see everybody, right? And then um, you know I'm going to send. Uh, he actually uses the word. Um, the Nachash is going to come and get you. You go, wow, wow that's a strange word to be saying there. <laughs> okay. Um, how does that one work? Uh, but, you know, this, this, this idea that uh, you cannot run from this uh, as, much, as much as you think that, that uh, you can. Um, as much as God can search out and woo people by his spirit wherever they are, at the same time, when it's time for judgment, he can search you out as well and you can't hide and uh and so uh the the way he describes himself i'm the lord of, of armies yet one of the things i'm always amazed about where, where god constantly describes himself i'm the lord of, of heavenly armies he never uses them you know uh you know one angel wipes out assyria uh but god does the rest himself um so there's it, perhaps the angels have other tasks that they are doing we get hints of that spiritual warfare in in other books and of course in revelation as well you end up with michael fighting the dragon not god but here god is taking a very active role 
in dealing with his people. Couple of hands raised. Uh, honor the hands. So, Vida or David? Aaron, just a quick question. In the verse one, it says, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. What imagery is that giving? And I'd be really interested to know what uh, Moti might think of this. Is it inferring, in a sense, the imagery to the Jewish people that he's the sacrifice? Or is it inferring in the sense that he's, I, I can't think what it would, what the word standing upon the altar would mean. Receiving the sacrifice, what's that imagery portraying? Well, my initial um, thought when I read this was um, I was thinking of the altar in heaven, um, but I was also thinking of uh, in, the, in the Torah, who were the judges of the community? It was the priesthood. Right, that they, if you to, to sort out a um, some sort of judiciary problem, like a crime, you went to the, the priests, and the Cohens and the Levites they decided what the what the, the punishment was, and you enacted it immediately. Who's the high priest in heaven? God, Jesus. Okay? But uh, and so there he is by the altar, engaging in his judiciary function. But is it by the altar or stand? My version says standing upon the altar, standing upon it. Uh, it's Nitzav Al. It could be either beside or on it. Yep. Yep. Re'iti et Adonai Nitzav Al Mizbeach. Al is usually on, but um, in this sense, when you say somebody is on the altar, it means the person is standing by the altar uh, ministry. Um, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's like saying I'm I'm on the telephone. Well, not li yeah. not literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Aria, you've got a hand raised. So. Yes. Uh, just following that little comment, to me, it seems that this is an earthly imagery here of uh, the of the current religious system because the result is a sword that is exiling the people that are clearly attending this false uh, temple and, and ill-used uh, um, altar. So you uh, would read it that there's a, is a, that God is actually in I think he start, he see, if this is sort of thing, well, judgment begins at your, at your false religious system. Okay. I'm yeah. going to deal with it first. It's going to collapse upon you. And then the sword is going to pursue you. The, the, uh, he's saying uh, strike the, the, the capitals at the top of uh, pillars next to the altar and they're going to fall down and uh, scatter the people. So it seems to be a, a preliminary or starting judgment at this temple that is being portrayed that has pillars, capitals, and an altar. All right, I was gonna write that down. Judgment starts at home. At the house, you could say at the house of God, or most especially the false worship of God. Yeah, and that's uh, very, very akin to the um, the cleansing of the temple, you know, uh, by Jesus. We how do we start Holy Week? We we do a good whipping of the temple. Okay, we sort of <laughs> religious systems are the worst. Uh, they're the hardest to deal with. The hardest to deal with. Yeah, I, I was struck um, in this continuation. Um, Afterwards, in this description of the exile and God's pursuit of this people in, in what is 
let's call it uh, wrathful uh, discipline. It, it seems to be a perfect parallel to Psalm 139, where the individual is describing his hypothetical flee, fleeing from God, that if I go up into the heavens and if I go to the bottom of the sea and if I take up the wings, et cetera, et cetera, there you are, you're going to find me. And in many ways, that individual is on one hand contemplating the, the inevitability of things, but on the other hand, he's also, I think, secretly being encouraged by the mercies of God, that God is not going to give up on me. He's going to pursue me to the ends of the earth, just like he did Jonah. And he will save, he will, his hand is not shortened to save. Yeah. And I think that's where, uh, within all the frightening aspect of the judgment of God, there's also that other aspect of the constant opportunity to also save. So there's that, that tension that, that, that's here, although the first bit is definitely um, quite strong uh, in, his, in his pursuit. Um, all right. Any other thoughts? Otherwise, I'll ask another question. Uh, uh, Lisa from Sweden, is that right? Well, no, this is a question to you all here. Might it be a prophecy of the Son Jesus Christ coming in these verses because it was in as um because it's in both in the old and new testament Pro prophetic passages are always mysterious this is why um you know when our two little friendly disciples were on the road to Emmaus and they meet Jesus and and he says, you know, what were you talking about? And he says, well, you know, we kind of hoped that Jesus was going to restore the kingdom, you know. And, uh, and then Jesus says, oh, come on, you foolish guys. Don't you understand? And then he opened up the scriptures. Um, it's, and and it's, 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 it's very easy to sort of, you know, we're, we're 2,000 years removed. And so it's very easy for us to say, what are all the prophecies of Jesus in the, in the, in the Hebrew Bible? Well, I can go to a website press print and they're all there for me um prior to having this technology um some of the texts were a little unclear and could easily be construed by some very strong persuasive arguments that uh, uh to to miss to misrepresent uh, uh the truth but um when we're talking about raising up the sukkot of david the house of david we are most of us have been talking about here the reestablishment of the Davidic king, kingship. Well, who would that be? In uh, of course, that's Jesus. That's Yeshua, and so he um, he will suffer no other rival. So you're absolutely right. This is uh, a looking forward um, to a, a, a return, a recall of uh, the kingship to the house of, of Israel as King Messiah. King Messiah, which we're all, I think, looking forward to. Um, so, okay. So I remember when I first uh, read this text, this is a couple of, no, I read this a long time ago, but when I started really paying attention, um, how's that? Uh, this idea of, of trying to figure out what was David's fallen tent? What was his, what was it? And uh, one thing I, I thought about was um, when David brought the ark 
into Jerusalem. Where did he keep it? The city of David, no? Well, he didn't, well, he didn't build a temple because no. he wasn't allowed to. So it, he it had to put it somewhere. It was and in a city. It was no. in a booth. It was in a it booth. It was in a booth, correct. It was, no, it, in was a, in a it was in a Mishkan that he had created. So this is not the Mishkan of Shiloh. This is the, the one that they set up in the tabernacle. And this is not the temple. There was some third structure. And uh, it was a unique structure in the essence that David had access to the, the uh, ark. When prior, it was hidden behind a parochet, it was hidden behind a curtain. So for a brief moment in time, you had access to the Lord, direct. And, uh, and, and so, so one element, although it's, it's, it's a very, very um, allegorical one, is this idea that, um, you know, what should we be, what sort of worship should we be having? What sort of access should we be having to the Lord? No curtains direct access just delight yourself in the presence of the lord worship him directly you know david's got his worshipers there you know this whole idea of, of the, the the modern sukkot halal which is a great little ministry by the way they, they're doing fantastic stuff and anybody who visits jerusalem should really go and spend some time with them and worship the lord they're great um uh but you know this sort of idea that as one aspect of the future is um, is this idea of direct access uh, to God all the time? So, but it's an it's it's a it's a it's one of the you know remember when we talk about the different levels of reading Bible? This is the not literal version. <laughs> okay, this is the uh, this is the allegorical more more side of things, but it's still nice. So according to the tradition, it also symbolizes the kingdom of you know David, that David and Solomon, the, the Jewish people had the best kingdom during their period of time. So it's also kind of a promise of a political kingdom as well as a spiritual end. Uh, yeah. Okay. Excellent. Uh, Sandra? Yeah, so considering what you just said, that you know, we, we're giving... Um, you know, restoring the, the, the fallen booth of David, uh, like you're giving access to, uh, direct access to God. In that sense, that prophecy has been kept or it has come true. That's what I mean. Because, you know, since, since Yeshua, since his death and resurrection, we now have uh, free access to, to God's presence. Absolutely. Well, I think we would all agree with that. And so you, 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 you find in a lot of the prophetic scriptures, you can have multiple readings and, and multiple ways of actually fulfilling it. Um, that's actually, I think, one of the treasures of, uh, and mysteries of, of the prophetic scriptures and probably the reason why most of our, our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago didn't quite get what, what we're talking about now because, because, honestly, we're reading this with hindsight, so we have a lot we're quite a blessed community to be able to read and understand our task now brothers and sisters is put this into practice right to make sure that this is not just something we read and not just something that we think about but things that um, after our ponderings and musings that uh, we take uh, the holy spirit that's been given to us and put it into practice 
um, so we've actually listened to the roar of uh, of Zion and uh, and done something. All right. So why do you think, guys? Here's my question. Verse twelve. Uh, what 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 are, what what's this? Edom thing. Now I know the Edomites and the history that Edom and Israel has rather tense, and uh, but Edom isn't actually included in the Promised Land. So what? Why? Why do we have to possess them? The remnant of Edom. What's going on there? Perhaps there's some piece of history that I've missed. Um, uh, I know that portions of them did migrate over uh, the Jordan into southern Israel. Um, but any ideas? Anyone want to be able to help me out here? Edom was the uh, branch of the family from which the Amalekites came. Aha, uh -huh. so it's a, it's a reference to Amalek, you think? Well, the Amaleks, Amalekites were a subset of the Edomites, and neither of them have a particularly good name through, through biblical history. They, the Edomites were prophesied against for rejoicing at the destruction of Jerusalem, I, I believe both Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel. Okay. So who are these other nations that are called by my name, right? So uh, there, there is definitely a, um, uh, a possession of Edom and all the, the, all the Gentiles, all the nations, that have, that have been basically put my name on them. Uh, what does that mean, do you think? Because to me, my initial reading was this is, huh, we're looking at uh, some nations, the God-fearers, the, the nations who, who are believing in God that are not, not uh, Israel. Any thoughts? That's I find that an interesting one. verse. That's a tough one because um, in Revelation, it talks about all the nations turning against Israel. Okay, no, good point. Okay, Revelation does have that one here uh uh it's it's still it's just discussing this idea of the people um isn't it yeah that's like an inheritance right they're 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 gaining it um israel's gaining the uh the the cities of edom and um the terror the the nations that call on the name of the lord it's easy to see the very broad prophetic vision of the uh law prophetic person proceeding from Zion to the ends of the earth, even as Jesus prophesied. He, he's got a few dozen faithful survive, surviving followers at the time of his death, and he opens his mouth and he says, this gospel will be preached in the entire world for a testimony to it. Totally amazing. Yeah, somehow the nations of the world join in, and they have been prophesied to having been done so even before the first exile which is interesting, isn't it? You're supposed to be a light to the nations. You weren't very good at it, but trust me, you're going to be. And uh, uh, even, even when you think you're not being a, a witness, I'll figure it out. And, um, and, yet, and there's somehow just, just obscure little, little verses that appear in, in the text and uh, where God says, I'm dealing with other nations too, and uh, I have not left any of my creation alone. All right. Ireland is about to let us uh, uh, understand the truth. Velma. Uh, I'm going to really go off the rails here. Um, <laughs> all the nations that bear my name, um, 
I was kind of going down into the Isaiah 19 thing, um, okay. where you have Egypt, Assyria, and Israel, and all, all being unified under God, um, mostly because I'm reading the book at the minute, and it's talking about Abraham's descendants, and it's talking about Hagar, Sarah, and Keturah's children are all descendants of Abraham, which is that whole region, and they all are under covenant with God, because God promised he would look after Ishmael and one thing or another, and is he looking at those nations, that they one day, Israel be the centre of that area, if you know what I mean? I know that's very <laughs> Well, just like we were discussing, there are other um, verses in the, in the prophets which where God pays attention to the other nations. He does. Mm. He is. He is not. I mean, he has a special treasured possession, but that does not mean that there's that he doesn't care for the rest of the world because he does. For God so loved the world. Right. It's not. Not. It's not, not for God so loved the Jews that he sent Jesus. You know, to heck with the Australians. Okay, it's um, for God to love the world. That's everybody, and um, and so you get those hints in some of the in some of the other scriptures. And the one you're dealing with, or, or brought up, uh, Isaiah 19. That's um, that's very close to um, Christ Church's heart because we help facilitate that uh, through the uh, the Crossroads Ministry, and um, and our, our we sent a small team not two weeks ago coming back from Jordan where we had a, a, an Isaiah 19 crossroads uh, meeting and encounter between Jordanians and Iraqis and Syrians and the people who could get into, into that area, Egyptians. Um, so once again, just hearing some of the good stories of what Jesus is doing in those countries. And he is doing something in those countries because he's sitting on the throne. So he has to be. And, um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, we, it's an easy link to, to, to see those nations as being part of that as well. Shimshon, there's another nation that God's working with. Thanks. Yeah, um, you know, this is some verse 12, like you mentioned, it's, um, it's very interesting. And when you just read it again, what just struck me, it's um, well, Moses' words to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 2, um, it was saying that, um, God was saying that don't harass the Edomite because I will not have given I will not give you an inch of their land. Um, mm. In Jeremy, uh, I think it's two verse five. God was telling the Israelites, okay, this nation don't harass them. I'm not going to give you an inch of their land. Uh, other nations do not touch them, but this these are the nations you will take possession of the land. But here we begin to see that God is saying that uh, I will give you the rest of Edom. Um, and it reminds me of what he says in them, Obadiah 17. In Obadiah 17, um, it says that um, um, upon Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their position and the house of Edom shall become a stumble and the house of Jacob fire. Joseph, I think he used Joseph fire and they shall consume the whole of um, Edom. And again, it's, so it looks as if it's... Um, um, God um, making a U-turn on what he has said concerning the land of Edom on that place. I don't know whether the prophet is using it um, as a poetry or he's using it literally here. 
That's a good question. And I, and I think we should also keep the link of Edom and one of his descendants, Amalek, that, that, uh, that um, tribe that where God uh, in Exodus 17 says, I'm having war with Amalek, Amalek forever. forever. And so it could be that, that, that um, Amalek and Edom somehow someone's become um, synonymous, possible. Because uh, you're right. Deuteronomy 2.5, God tells them, don't do that. Don't, don't take Edom. That's not your territory. Uh, and as um, uh, I think Damaris mentioned, uh, the, 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 Abraham had a whole chunk of kids. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and the, the oh, it might have been, I don't know who was mentioning it, but um, one of them is Midian, right? Where Moses ended up. Yeah. And Jethro ended up, right? They're actually descendants of Abraham. So there's a, there's a lot of descendants of Abraham running around here. And God had said that, yeah, you know, you're going to, the, the world is blessed through you, Abraham. So there's, um, there's, there's, there's some lineage there that has a little bit of weight. So yeah. Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus, was an Edomite. Yep. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. And by this stage, yeah. And, uh, yeah, they weren't doing so well. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, all right. My next question. All right. Um, the verse thirteen. The days are coming. Another another uh, uh, indication of uh, some some a special piece of time, when the plowman overtakes the reaper, the treader of grapes, he who sows seeds. What are we looking at here? We're looking at an, 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 an abundant economy where everything's turned upside down, right? Where, um, you know, you, uh, production can't keep up with supply, uh, which is rather rare, okay? Um, this, uh, the, the, this talks, seems to apply a very physical blessing, okay? It also sounds like the startup nation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we just, yeah and uh but it, it, it is it's 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 where the economy doesn't seem to work the way it's supposed to work okay i mean um uh the plowman overtakes the reaper well that just shouldn't happen in any farming principle at all right um the uh and and you know the treader of grapes well he can't be doing anything if you haven't got enough grapes to give him so it is talking about a, a very, very abundant economic blessing, uh, which, you know, kind of living in it, uh, Israel seems to have um, a very vibrant economy right now. Some people will say that this is just an aberration of history. Um, others might say, well, I just read in Isaiah that it seems to reflect something very, very strange going on where uh, the rest of the world seems to be doing poorly and uh, a nation that has no oil, no minerals, no gold, a chunk of gas right now, but uh, prior to that, uh, we're still doing um, reasonably well. Okay, Helen from Uganda, if I remember. Hey, uh, thank you, Aaron. Um, Vaspatin, I, I don't know, I tend to think about the indication of the Holy Spirit as well. 
Okay. Because um, I'm seeing like from verse 12, uh, it's also the prophecies indicating the salvation plan of God that includes the Gentiles and uh, which really comes uh, uh, into play in uh, Acts 15 after uh, Paul and Barnabas go and preach to the Gentiles. And uh, um, if you allow me to read the portion, uh, verse 15, verse 12, he says, then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then they quote this scripture again. After this, I'll return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I'll rebuild its ruins. Basically, he quotes the same scripture we are at and showing the salvation plan of how God was looking at reaching out to the Gentiles. And uh, I mean, there would be also a grafted into this promise of salvation. Uh, so now verse 13, I tend to go to the side of the miraculous, the side of the Holy Spirit uh, doing the things that are impossible, the plowman overtaking the reaper, the trader of grapes uh, with him who sows seed, the mountains dripping with sweet wine. I, I tend to, to also think that this could be an indication of the overflowing power of the Holy Spirit that will come uh, you know, with the coming of the Messiah, with the salvation, you know, the, 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 the generation that will come after uh, the generation of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. That's fantastic. So look at that. There's um, one look at it as it, like it's just a, uh, uh, an economic boom, which is what we're seeing as well. And then it's actually used in scripture um, by the apostles as a defense of their work among the Gentiles and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit saying, look, we're already doing it. We're rebuilding David's fallen tent right in front of our eyes. And, uh, and sort of the, the, uh, the Isaiah 9 is, a, is used as a, um, as a proof text for what's going on there as well as what's going on today. So you're looking at uh, two things. Although, let's think, imagine if we were reading this 300 years ago right um and we get to verse 14 and we're having a bible study you know in our um with our candles okay or, or we're having it at midday because it's the only time we can actually see the, the print on the paper not that we actually have that many books i will restore the captivity of my people israel you know that hadn't happened it didn't look like it was ever going to happen right you had these these very strong pieces of, of prophecy and uh and i mean it's easy now looking back mm -hmm. to be able to say oh it's so obvious why can't we all see it you know um but 300 years ago there's not that many of us that would have seen it either there were some yes there were some um obviously um christ church and cmj is uh is a product of a lot of these faithful um, evangelicals who who were reading these texts saying no god is going to do something very physical it's physically going to happen there's going to be a, an ingathering of, of captivity but um 300 years ago 
it, uh, you could easily have just said, no, no, what Helen said, that's happened. We're done now. We're done. Okay, yeah, good. Thanks, thanks for Acts 15 and uh, Amos 9, whereas we're all done now. Um, uh, but, uh, but it's happened again. All right, so Janice. I, I was just sort of um, going on to the sort of I wills and I wills in this passage. Okay. Thinking of the Seder, where we have these words of, you know, that are repeated and have been repeated throughout generations, like, I will deliver you, I will do this. I can't remember them all right now, but they're all said in the Haggadah. And, and there's a lot of that in Ezekiel as well. Sort of when, you know, God is, when he makes those sort of statements, they're, they're, they're sort of not negotiable in a sense. And I think, I think, you know, things like, like, like staying with the Passover and staying with those times where God has said, I will, I will do this, that um, they're, um, yeah, they're not things that you see, but sort of next year in Jerusalem or those things that somehow have been put, I, I don't know, this is sounding a bit esoteric, but put into the spiritual DNA of the people that some, you know, it, it's, um, it's not just somewhere over the rainbow, but it is, there's, 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 there's just a kernel of something in there that, that God can bring, um, that he can bring to life again. You know, it's like, it's again, the, the stump, the things that, that look like they're just not there anymore. Um, you know, the scripture's full of that. It is and the the, uh, the the evangelicals of the late 1700s looked at some of these I wills and said, no, the, this is a non-negotiable phrase. This is going to happen. And they took it upon themselves to say that, well, we're going to help. OK, you know, how's that for a little bit of hubris? <laughs> Although they actually did. But but it, it is a little bit of hubris to turn around and say, you know, I'm going to help the Lord when we actually we actually are supposed to. Case anybody didn't notice, right? Who shares the gospel, right? Mm -hmm. We do. But he's always asking for that sort of, I mean, there's an I will, but there's also an agreement with that. And so um, e even if you don't see it, you, you, um, you, you still have to engage with it. I mean, that's yeah. part of hoping for things that are not yet seen, you know, yeah. as you see Hebrews. Yeah, Nama putting the, the I wills of the Haggadah, Exodus 6. There are four of them where God says, and then hence the four cups of wine uh, at the Seder. That's where they're one of their little nice little links. Moti, uh, sitting in sunny Jerusalem. Oh, what a sunny Jerusalem. It's raining like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It's actually a sign of a Beracha, you know, during Pesach. Today is the last day of Pesach. It's, it's good thing. The, the land needs it. It reminds me of Ezekiel, my one of my favorite books, chapter 26. Okay. That says, I will take you from among the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you to your land. And I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean from all impurities and from all abominations will I cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and new spirit will I put in you. And I will take away the heart of stone of your flesh. I will give you a heart of your flesh. 
And then do you will dwell in the land that I give to your father, you'll be a people to me and I will be a God to you. But if this is this starts from the verse 24, and if someone wonders why God would bring them back, God answers that question in verse 23, saying, And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. So God, God did bring Jewish people back to the land, Baruch Hashem. And if you take the train uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you, you can see the vineyards, the people are planting vineyards, and we are eating and drinking the fruits of it. And actually, Ezekiel 36 is also uh, the prophecy in Ezekiel 36 is uh, coming true at the moment. There are a lot of people in Israel, more than anywhere else in the world, I mean, Jewish people coming to the Messiah. Uh, you know, there are messianic synagogues in the States, but they are they are not uh, increasing in numbers. But in Israel, it is increasing. Aaron is currently uh, discipling with one of them. So Baruch Hashem, God keeps his promises to everyone, not only to Jewish people. And by keeping his promises, he signifies his name, as, as all the nations know his name at the moment. So it, the end times, you know. So uh, Vitek from Czech. Uh, uh, had been has been looking at uh, what Helen had spoken about in Acts 15, where Peter is quoting Amos and speaking about rebuilding uh, uh, David's fallen tent. Uh, he seems to be giving instructions for the Gentiles, you know, to hear the teachings of God. And um, so, is that actually part of the rebuilding of the of the uh, David's fallen tent? Well, in in one aspect, absolutely, Vitek, because um, what Bible would the uh, the people have had in Acts 15? They would have only have actually had Hebrew scriptures, and the call was Gentiles come close, not to come close and not read nothing, but uh, to come close and read the words of God and also hear the good news of Jesus of the Messiah. So uh, I think that uh, the, the 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 all of the scriptures are. Um, are to be read and studied, and uh, and we and we develop. Um, uh, I mean, from I mean, after all, here we are reading a Jewish prophet, when um, most of us here, there's a few Jews here, but uh, most of us here are from the nations, and yet it's still speaking to us, right? And uh, it's uh, these these Jewish words are still impacting us. Well, one hopes they are. And for those that are listening online. I hope that they're um, motivating you also to uh, um, look forward to God's full restoration of the Jewish people as, um, as Mordecai there, the heart of stone becoming a heart of flesh for the sake of God's great name. Um, but also this might actually involve our participation. Uh, we might actually have to help it. And uh, that includes sharing the, uh, the good news. All right. Uh, a few more verses and then we'll... Um, uh, stop and pray. It, it, verse 14 and 15 are very, very clear. They do talk about a land. Um, this is a, a theological issue, headache for some denominations, particularly for replacement Israel people. Okay. Um, because if, if you take out the word Israel and try and substitute the word church, um, it's very hard to try and think about um, a captive church uh, rebuilding cities and uh, living in land that was always always theirs. I mean, it's it just does. You have to you have to 
go through incredible theological hoops to to turn this into a um, a a uh, replacement theology uh, uh, chapter. I mean, people do. Okay? I'm not saying that they don't. I mean, they really do. Okay, um, but it's you've got to really stretch it. Um, this is this is a definite promise for God's people. I mean, here we are talking to Israel, who's who's affluent, who's rich, unfaithful. They're about to go into exile. It's the same people, right? All the same people. And it's going to be the same land that he's going to be bringing them back into. And the cities that God is about to destroy in the same chapter, it's going to rebuild again. And uh, the vineyards that are all going to get ripped up, they're going to be replanted again. And, uh, and, and then the, the fruit will, will, will come about. And as uh, Moti reminds us, and for all of us who live in Israel, we are indeed eating and drinking of the fruit of the land in abundance, and it's great. And, uh, and, and the promise in verse 15 is a very interesting one, because what is he meaning here? You know, Netanyahu uh, once delivered this, uh, uh, these verses in the United Nations where he turned around uh, when Ahmadinejad was wanting to wipe Israel off the map. And he said, no, nope, not going to happen, because what did God say? I will never uh, remove you again. Right? This is, uh, I will plant them in their land. They will not again be rooted out from their land, which I'm giving them, says the Lord. And uh, so this is a challenge for well, pretty much anybody who would like to uh, uh, try and uh, take Israel away, uh, be that uh, the United Nations, Iran, or any other, or empires, or false theologies, okay? So that's also, you're, you're, you're just, you end up on dangerous ground, I think, when you start to challenge the king of heaven in this way. Okay, two hands raised, Shimshon, Nigeria, uh, and so Rabbi Shimshon, Rabbi Moti, go for it. All right. Um, just want to make a comment on the on that phrase of using the vineyard. You know, many times the prophets always use that phrase, and it's always talking about a very great time of prosperity, restoration, and things. And um, in Micah four four, it says, "And each man shall sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one would frighten them, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." Uh, if you read in um, John um, in John 15, Jesus was using the same phrase that uh, I am the vine, you know, and my father is the, you know, um, gardener and things like that. Uh, many times you see the scripture use this vine, it's always speaking about um, the time of um, the restoration or, or speak about the messianic era. And it's very beautiful that um, the prophet here used it to, you know, conclude this whole um, episode of his um, prophecy, the judgment, and also the restoration. It's um, very beautiful. Because for every um, Hebrew mind, when they hear that word, the vine, and uh, plant their vineyard, there's something that resonates in them more than just hearing, um, you know, it's and that's what is happening in Israel today, that everybody's experiencing it, everybody's saying it, because it is something that resonates well with the people. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, more hands raised. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Moti, you're next. What an honor to speak after Rav Shimshon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what you said uh, about Iranians and 
my rabbi back in Berlin used to say the anti-Semitism didn't, didn't start with Nazis. You know, it started way before Nazis and it still goes on. And it reminds me of a song that most of us most likely know. Uh, if we trust, try to translate it, it says, but in every generation they raised up to destroy us, but the Holy One, blessed be he, delivers us from their hands. It's called Veishi Amda, you probably know. It's, it's, very, it's very powerful. And some of the Haggadahs, some of the traditional Haggadahs uh, uh, contain these verses. It, in every generation, literally you see someone hates the Jew, Jews the most. <laughs> now we have Iranians. Before them, they were Arabs. And then before them, they were Germans. Every generation we have someone. But if we stay faithful, then God delivers us from their hands. Amen. Yeah. Okay, Teresa, London. Uh, hi there. Um, two points, really. One is that uh, in the book of Esther, just going back and continuing from what Motti was saying and was said earlier, that um, Haman, of course, tries to destroy the Jews, and he was descended from Amalek. And there was a link there, wasn't there, um, between, between Saul and um, Haman and Amalek. And also um, Mordecai was in fact a Benjamite. So I think those are very interesting things. And of course we said uh, King Herod was an Edomite and he tried to destroy Jesus. Well, of course, then we get Haman having a go in, uh, to destroy the Jewish people. And so it goes on. Um, and the other thing was going back, uh, it may have been mentioned, I might've just missed it, um, but in Isaiah, 58.11, it tells Israel, I mean, it's obviously there's a lot more prophecy here. It's if you do this, if you do this, um, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will rise, raise up the age-old foundations, and you'll be called the repairer of broken walls, restorer of the streets with dwellings, etc., and it's just another reference to this restoration and rebuilding, isn't it? Yeah. Because there are so many places where God says, I will put you back in the land. Yeah. There's always some, that hope that seem, they're going some, to come back. That's true. Some seem conditional, like what you just read, if this, yes. if And some if, don't. Like the one here, it doesn't seem conditional. No. And, and the one that Moti read in Ezekiel, it's for the sake of my great name. Okay, that's the mm -hmm. condition. Right. So we have to, I think what, what you've also brought out, Teresa, is you've got to keep both there. There's a, there's yeah, a... I was going to say that. You can't have one without the other in a way. It starts off, look, you've got to do this. This is all wrong. You're get, you've got it all completely upside down. You're oppressing people. You're going completely against Torah. And then it's, well, I'm going to restore you, but I'm going to restore you because of my name, not your yeah. name. <laughs> yep. I don't know. I may have missed something in that. No, oh, you're right. And but, but it still gives you the the obligation is still to obey the Lord. Absolutely. That's oh, right. absolutely. Without. And questions. you see, you see it in the new in the New Testament. We were just reading First Peter, where Peter where Peter says, you know, now be holy in all of your conduct, mm. not in all of your thoughts, not in all of your mm. you know kind kind words or Bible studies, but in what you actually physically do. Uh, it's about, isn't it, in your going, as you follow your rabbi, well, it's Rabbi Yeshua, then yep. you, you actually do what he, 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 do, he models what he's teaching, he does it, and we do exactly the same thing, we copy him, and then we model it, we do it. And he says, you're going to do greater things than me, not you're going to think greater yeah. things than me, 
You're going to write better <laughs> books than me because I'm not writing anything. You know, you're going to do greater <laughs> things. So, all right. So I've got uh, Lauren. You. Um, you're going to have to remind me where, where you come from. Hi, everyone. I'm from South Africa. That's right. Yeah, and, and I've been away for three weeks, so I, I really did miss being here to hear all the remainder of the AMOS, but I'll catch up with it. But I want to throw a curveball in here. As I've been reading these 11, 12 and onwards with all of this to the end, um, I've just been thinking about the inclusion of the Lord bringing everybody into the covenant. I actually was looking at this word here, they may possess the remnant of Eden, verse 12, and Edom goes, oh, the root of that is red. And the, the law of first mention is in Genesis 25, 25, where uh, the two brothers began to argue and lose. The, uh, Esau was actually going to sell his birthright. And when I looked at this, I just thought to myself how extraordinary the Lord is, that in all of this, he mentions the Gentiles over and over. And there is the, for me, as I was looking at this, I was seeing the bringing in and the inclusion into the covenant of Israel and the engrafted vine in all of this amazing word that is essentially to Israel, but, and yet God extends his other hand to the Gentiles. So I just thought- And I, I, and I think that that's the way Helen was referring it in Acts 15. I think uh, the apostles were deliberately using this verse in exactly the way you're saying it and exactly the way Helen mentioned it as well. But this is also bringing in the Gentiles. And because uh, that, that's what we see in the in the in the verses of Acts, Acts 15. So, yep, somehow God makes sure that all of his creation is is part of the redemptive process. Can I just interrupt, Erin? We've got to be careful in what we're saying with this multi-faithism that's going around that's not what you're referring to i'm assuming what no. you say clearly is only through messiah correct sure. exactly it's just in case somebody's hearing that they don't get right. confused there's so much right. uh, we hear so much no, no, no. jesus is lord there's only one messiah and so on the on the different levels god is god has got a very specific call on his people coming back into the land at the same time He's not leaving the Gentiles alone. Amen. Hence, you get the, the apostles um, lo looking at these verses where, where it's got the nations included and going, aha, look what this is what I've, I've physically seen the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles. And I'm, I'm going to find some proof texts that remind me that I should have known this all along. Um, and and they, they find it in uh, and they quote this this section. So it's got multiple levels of, of reading. There is a missing piece to this entire puzzle, and it is a future event in the land of Israel. Okay, go for it. Clearly, all Israel will be saved. Saved. Yay! <laughs> Everybody's got their fingers up. Okay. And, I, and I believe that we can all be agreed that we can be rather expansive in defining Israel. Yeah, 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 yeah. On that level, absolutely. Yes. Praise the Lord. Yeah. So, excellent. Excellent. For God so loved the world. 